Welcome to the New Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. We're a periodical covering the changes in money, which are getting faster and more confusing. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. Payments get faster and cheaper. Cash goes out of fashion and mobile payments take over. Some people are on the inside track, others risk being left behind. Money attracts the cleverest criminals who always seem to stay ahead of the game. Our podcast takes a big picture look at these trends. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and society with it. Each week we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money and prepare yourself for what lies ahead. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Brett Scott, who's an anthropologist, a former financial derivatives trader, and now an author and journalist focusing on finance and the evolution of money. Brett, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Uh, Could you tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, I am Brett Scott. I wrote the book, The Heretic's Guide's Global Finance, uh, Hacking the Future of Money, a few or several years back. And I work a lot in alternative finance, alternative monetary systems, and uh, financial campaigns and activism around finance. And I have a background in working in the financial sector, I worked as a derivatives broker. And I also have a background in anthropology and international development and various other things. So, and I've got a new book coming out um, next year. Which is called? Um, it's called Cloud Money. It's about cash, digital money, and all sorts of other things. So all these exciting things that are going on around us. Pretty much, yeah. pretty much. How does your background in anthropology affect the way you see money? Ah, well, that's a pretty, pretty big uh, question. But I mean, in general, the anthropology discipline has a very different kind of approach to money than the economics discipline does. I would say actually anthropology has a very different approach to economic systems in general. So historically, anthropology approaches an economic system um, from a different starting point. They would say, how do people provision for themselves in the world? That's the sort of the starting point. Whereas economists would tend to start by saying, how do people trade? So they simply assume that trading is the thing that people do, whereas anthropologists don't assume that. They assume that people have many different ways of arranging themselves economically. And so a lot of economic anthropology is looking at different forms of non-monetary exchange or non-exchange-based economies, so or economies where exchange looks very different to how it looks like in a standard capitalist economy. Um, so like gift systems or reciprocity systems or patronage systems and so on. So there's a whole bunch of different stuff that economic anthropology looks at. But in general, this goes along with a different take on money because a lot of the way economists view money, again, starts from that assumption that human trade is the default um, in all societies, whereas anthropologists don't assume that. So the way they see money is very different. Um, so, so they go back further in time, essentially, to look at, or further further back in human history to look at. Uh, what yeah, very much. Of, I mean, the best way. Trade. 
the best way to see this is to, is to understand that economics as a discipline essentially emerged in the context of large-scale capitalism. Okay, okay. so nation-state capitalism. So economists were always in that mindset, whereas anthropologists have often looked at pre-capitalist societies where that mindset doesn't really exist. So a lot of what economists present as being just sort of natural human exchange and stuff is actually a very specific historical thing that they're describing, a very like particular economic system. And then they, they kind of present it as being universal, when in reality it's not. So uh, anthropologists would generally say, um, well, I mean, there's a difference between different types of anthropologists, but um, money would be seen as something that actually um, creates markets, all right, which is very different to economists who would say that markets sort of almost like precede money. Right. Okay. So when, yeah. when you when you start from the assumption that there, that there are no markets and then monetary systems get introduced and they sort of catalyze and induce the presence of markets, that's a very anthropological way of seeing things. Okay. Whereas so, economists would tend to be like, there's always markets and therefore money must be invented. So on your blog, uh, I found a really uh, interesting example, um, you know, which you used to illustrate this point. Um, perhaps you could explain, you know, could flesh out what you, you used an episode of the 1960s cartoon, the Flint, Flintstones, to explain mm -hmm. why, why we, you know, many of us uh, misunderstand money or maybe economists misunderstand money. Could you, could you explain, you know, what the, what you were saying there? Oh, Sure. Yeah, that was in my Substack newsletter, um, and I it was called How to Write a Flintstones History of Money. And actually, I was drawing on historical theory there as well, because actually, alongside anthropology, I studied, uh, have, a, have a degree in history as well. And in history, in the study of history, there's a branch called historiography, which uh, looks at, essentially, at the theory of how you write history. And... There is a there is a a branch of well, there's one style of history, uh, which is called presentist history, presentism, and basically it's it's a very common style of history. It's probably like the most common style of history, but it's also one of the worst styles of history. But uh, the way I used to describe it in this in this piece was the Flintstones. I mean, the Flintstones. I don't know. Well, I know what the I know who the Flintstones are, but I'm old, so maybe some of the listeners. Yeah, so, I don't know. Know. yeah. So, so for those who haven't haven't watched the Flintstones, it's an old cartoon where uh, there's Fred Flintstone and his family, and they live in this kind of they live in a prehistoric world, but all the things around them are basically modern. All right, so he drives a kind of like stone car, and he. Uh, works in a kind of like a, a factory or a stone factory. And then he goes home to like a neighborhood and drives around his <laughs> stone car. And so, so basically what, what they've done is they've taken a modern capitalist system and they've gone and kind of like set it in a prehistoric past. Okay, so they've taken a modern, a modern system and sort of like dressed it up to look like the past. Okay, and this is basically... Um, how you do presentist history, okay? And and the the one way you can you can you can imagine it is like you can imagine it almost from from a a theater designer perspective. You know, imagine you you have a a a um a, a kind of a set that only has prehistoric stuff in it. Okay, so you have a theater that only has prehistoric props in it, and you're told design a capitalist system in this set 
using only prehistoric things okay and and that's well, that's what you would that's what you would get if you that's what the flintstones is basically you have this like these guys driving stone cars and stuff um and this is actually a very this is when, when you're looking at how economists speak about money this is often what they've done right they've taken a modern capitalist system and projected it back into a time when capitalism didn't exist and then used it to describe the origins of money so when you look at the barter theory on the origins of money when, when Economists are basically saying, oh, well, people were all walking around trying to trade all the time, right? And they were all like, didn't know each other. And they all had all these like specialist goods and services that they were offering, but they had no money. All right. Therefore, they must have invented money to solve this problem. Um, they basically taken a modern capitalist system, projected it back in time, and then used it to explain the origins of money, right. um, which is extremely circular because... Um, Another example I used on that piece was it's a, it's a little bit like saying uh, taking a modern city and then eliminating modern forms of transport and then discovering to your horror that everybody now lives 60 kilometers apart, all right, um, because modern forms of transport have now disappeared, but you still people have people living very far away from each other and then using that to describe the origins of modern transport. Uh, right. Anyway, the, the piece is called How to Write a Flintstone's History of Money. So people want to go and go. Yeah, it's and a really interesting read. And I, 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 it brings me on to, um, so, what, so what are we actually missing when we, you know, make this, um, we, we kind of perform this false projection of our current kind of mindsets back, you know, thousands of years? I, I, I know um, you recently wrote, written a really nice tribute to David Graeber, the anthropologist who passed away a couple of months ago. Um, and I read his book a few years ago about uh, the origins of debt, and it really changed my views on 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 the kind of the the topic of debt and uh, and how you know I also come from a background in the financial markets, and I worked in the bond markets, which is the, the you know the the, the debt uh, market uh, par excellence, and and you know the the idea that uh, debt, in, as Graeber explains, is not necessarily something that has to be repaid, was kind of an eye opener for me. So I just wonder, you know, what are we missing by projecting our maybe narrow economist's view of finance and money back to, you know, across all of human society? Well, I mean, there's probably many different things to say there, but one of the first ones is that there is an inextricable link between monetary systems and modern market capitalist systems. Okay, so... Um, look at this, when I was talking about the Flintstones history of money, one of the assumptions made by economists was that humans naturally trade regardless of whether there's money present and therefore therefore invent money okay once you drop that assumption and you say actually there's not there's nothing natural about humans trading actually what humans naturally do in small scale societies is they often collaborate and they are interdependent all right so you start from an assumption of interdependence of mm. small groups of people yeah. That's the starting point, right? You don't start from the assumption of large groups of strangers, which is what the economist's starting point is. Um, so you start from the assumption of close groups of associates, and then you say, okay, so that was the sort of default starting position. People live in bands. They depend on each other for survival. They teach each other language. Um, and then you start to see that modern capitalism, which is these large-scale markets where pe basically people are just associated from each other and do the sort of arm's-length trading, is something that only develops later and is induced by large-scale state systems, 
Okay, right. so when large scale and, and it also states, sorry to interrupt you, but it also you know that that kind of definition of of uh, economic activity then also would exclude, you know, very important uh, human activities such as childcare or care for the elderly. You know, all these things that are innate to society but don't necessarily have a monetary sure, value. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so so again, if you're starting from the sort of default economist position. It's assumed that you have these sort of fully grown adults who just simply walk onto markets, right? And they don't know each other yeah. and they, get, they engage in this kind of exchange, right? And then the question that all like, you know, economic anthropologists will ask or feminist economists is like, well, who cared for these people? How did they somehow manage to get to an age where they're um, yeah. capable and able to even speak language and engage in autonomous trades? It's like, well, of course, there's a huge hidden world of care that's going on and, and reciprocity and interdependence that first must exist before any of this like independent kind of uh, trading can occur. And this is a huge hidden iceberg beneath the market. So a lot of critiques on modern economics would basically be that it invisibilizes that whole um, world of care. And when it does think about it, tries to think about it in market terms. When in reality, that forms a foundation upon which actual markets are built. It's not something that you can use markets for. So, um, and yes, there's there's these very deep critiques and very different that that anthropologists would tend to have when approaching um, economics. Um, But yeah, it's it's a once you start to have that mindset, you it's it really affects the way that you you view monetary systems, right? Because you start to see um, that actually monetary systems are the sort of one of the core mechanisms via which human interdependence works. Okay. And this is like uh, modern human interdependence works. Um, but so I the design of the this. design of monetary systems is about much more than money then. It's it underpins the whole of society effectively. Yeah, look, and I'm I've worked on uh, many different types of alternative money systems um, prior to People often think about cryptocurrencies when you talk about alternative money systems, but there's a whole world of pre, pre-crypto um, alternative monetary systems, which, um, yeah, and a lot of them basically look at can small groups of people use monetary systems to um, increase their sort of, um, uh, yeah, kind of like, 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 coordinate economic action between themselves. Um, so there is this whole, there's like many different ways you can implement monetary systems. But in general, the, the, the modern monetary systems that we have are implemented by very powerful players. And historically, those have been the most powerful monetary systems. So the, the right. field of sort of alternative monetary design is how do you sort of like tinker with these different types of um, styles of monetary system yeah. design. Yeah. yeah. So what do you make of, of what's been going on over, during the last you know, decades or uh, during the period since the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, that obviously spawned uh, protest movements against the current financial system Occupy Wall Street. It, it also spawned the first cryptocurrency. We've had a lot of experimentation with local currencies. You know, what, what do you make of what's going on? You know, is, is everything now up for grabs? I mean, I, I mean, I've been involved in all of these these um, these different movements you just mentioned there, and they have very different uh, ideological backings to them. All right, so Occupy Wall Street or the Occupy movement was, in in basic terms, and I don't want to be like politically crude, but 
it was basically a left-wing movement, right? It was basically people who came together and, and said, the state has been captured by corporate interests and we believe that it can be different. We believe that the state can work in the interests of people and we want to recapture it back from corporate interests. Mm-hmm. And if you hang around, if you hung around the Occupy Wall Street movement and the Occupy movements, we find it was very diverse, a lot of women involved. It was like quite a sort of broad-based movement. Cryptocurrency, by contrast, is very different. Cryptocurrency is often politically conservative. Um, Albeit in the early days of crypto, there was a sort of association made between things like Occupy and and Bitcoin, but but in reality, it's a very different crowd. So Bitcoin is always highly distrustful of states, um, also highly distrustful of the concept of society, or generally has a very individualistic notion. It's got this this idea of all these kind of slightly distrustful people trying to form arm's length systems between themselves without the use of a state. Yeah. Um, and it was heavily, heavily male. So massive gender bias in, in crypto. And there's a, there's a political reason for that, right? Um, there's clearly something different going on with crypto than what was going on with Occupy Wall Street. And then if you look at something like the local currency movement, well, again, very, very different. Local currency movements were basically often like communitarian, small-scale communitarian movements, Um also, maybe didn't believe that much in the state, but were definitely not individualistic. Very, very sort of like quite old school in a way, quite like about small scale, you know, community gardens and things like that. Yeah. It's, um, it's very voluntarist in the sense of like, you know, you're sort of associated with the village fair and, you know, elderly women who are helping children and that kind of thing, which is a completely different feeling yeah. to the very like warlike um vibe of the crypto world yeah so it's quite interesting to see how different people react to the mainstream financial system in different ways but in some ways everybody's united in a critique of seeing that the modern financial system has a bunch of problems yeah 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 it's interesting how you describe the the variety of uh, people involved in these different movements i wonder whether you know it's realistic to expect that these you know these movements will ever merge in in a kind of single entity or whether we just have continuing period of maybe they don't need to merge maybe we you know in the future we'll have uh, our digital wallets with you know you know we can put into them whatever we want we can have a bit of that a bit of this uh, you know maybe some cryptocurrency and some local currency i don't know whether that's <laughs> maybe intellectually consistent but it's maybe how things will evolve i'm, I'm not sure well yeah i mean you gotta like uh look if, if i was being sort of um it's, it's easy for me to say like yes that's possible like sure hypothetically in the future we might you know have a whole bunch of different things that we use and stuff but if i'm looking at the kind of uh real politic of finance the kind of like the actual politics what we tend to form is these sort of hybrid systems which are De facto, the financial sector is still massively powerful. And things like cryptocurrency have not dented the power of the financial sector. All right. There's like, you know, if you you hang out a typical Bitcoin meetup or something, people still kind of do all this saber rattling about apparently taking over the financial system. But the financial system takes zero notice of the cryptocurrency world. Well, they take Um, a bit more notice than they did two or three years ago. 
Yeah, maybe of things like stable coins and stuff like that, but like Bitcoin yeah. itself, like these 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 pose very little threat to the financial system, and they haven't. Mm. It's not like Wells Fargo, you know, or Barclays Bank is currently having meetings, being like, "Oh, we're under threat from Bitcoin." No, yeah. I mean, this has like never been the case. Okay, but um, so so in some ways, what's happened is is the, is the Bitcoin world has a sort of a certain kind of niche for itself. You know, it exists there and it has some uses. I've historically used Bitcoin for various things, but it's like it's it's not exactly a mainstream threat. Um, but what we do see is these forms of hybridization that are occurring, right? So, for example, the stablecoin systems. I mean, that yeah. is a very clear example of a, um, at least in its early, early stages, a crypto, a, a decentralized market in promises for centralized financial instruments. Yeah. yeah. All right. So it's a, it's a yeah. hybrid form. And that's yeah. quite interesting, right? Because that starts to become quite potentially actually threatening to the financial sector. Yes. And so, yeah, those are authentically quite interesting movements. But notice that they're not like, it's not like a revolution destroying the financial system. It's sort of like something that's like diverting some of the power away from it potentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So you talked, you said earlier that uh, our, you know, it, that maybe the the fallacy of some uh, economists is to, um, you know, project current conditions back into the past, and you 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 say that the, you know, the way that modern societies use money is, you know, very much a reflection of kind of nation state thinking that uh, developed, um, you know, from the 18th century onwards. Uh, I guess um, is it possible to to you know, now that the technology of money may be changing again um, with digitalization, the invention of cryptocurrencies, stable coins, all these things, is it possible to look forward and say, you know? Given that the technology seems to determine how we sort of understand money and how you know how to how it then affects society, can we kind of project forward as to you know what impact the current changes in technology might have in future? Um, yeah, look, I mean, what I can say is like the different types of visions that are emerging. I mean, you don't want to overestimate the technology. I mean, the technology we're referring to is basically like the internet. Uh, yeah. series of computers connected together yeah um, and then protocols via which you can coordinate action through that okay so like that's the technology at some basic level um and the the, the power of the alternative money system that you develop in that context i mean it really depends on what, what objective you're going for i mean so like if you look at like local currencies, for example, they don't they don't aspire to create some global currency. They're by default, they're about localism. They have a different sort of economic um, impulse behind them. They're trying to localize energy into small, small networks of people in, in local areas. But if, if your objective is to create a, a sort of global currency, that's a very, very different thing. And it's got a very, very different political meaning. Um, but so, so and in some ways, like there's not that many ways to change a monetary system there's only like certain things you can do um but like some of the most interesting stuff right now would probably be in the realm of um hybridizing um some of the systems together so i've already mentioned something like stable coins okay that's like one example of a hybridization it's basically saying we're going to create a again a sort of decentralized system for recording 
essentially promises for things in centralized systems. Okay, so it's a decentralized. So promises for, for things like for, you know promises for dollar claims or yeah, euro claims like or whatever. It's, it's basically run on black, run on a totally different system. Yeah, it's like a black market in in white market goods. I mean, it's and a sort of slightly parallel system. It'll, I mean, all the regulators I'm sure will start to like clamp down on that. But so like that's one example. Another example could be okay, rather than issuing a sort of trying to create a decentralized PayPal, which is what stable coins basically are. Um, uh, we could uh, say, try to build huge credit networks. Okay. So the world of sort of um, rippling credit systems is probably one of the most interesting forms of monetary experimentation right now. Um, What's, what do you mean by rippling credit systems? So like rippling credit systems, I mean, I don't know if you know the the, the, the platform Ripple. Yes. Um, Ripple actually started, uh, there was a guy called Ryan Fugger who started it. He's not involved anymore because well, basically what, what Ripple is now is very different to what Ripple started as. So Ripple started as, um, from, by Ryan Fugger, as an attempt to create a new way of doing a mutual credit system. So mutual credit systems is one paradigm of alternative local currency where essentially you get a group of people together and you say, we are going to issue promises to each other. And that's our monetary system. Okay. And there's going to be an administrator who sits and tells us how much debt we can go into each other with, how far we can go into debt to each other. And that's, that yeah. sort of limits your money supply in the system. And this is going back to, by the way, this point about Graeber, when you're talking about how you can understand money as a system of debt. Okay, yeah. so to understand these types of systems, you have to understand credit credit theories of money, um, where basically you can you you pay people by promising. Okay, so yeah. mutual credit systems was one type of system for paying by promise. So you issue IOUs and you can move them around in the system, and there's a it, it keeps track of that. But mutual credit systems historically are very limited in how the size that they can get. So rippling credit is a innovation which is based on the same idea, but it's, but the idea is to try and scale mutual credit systems. Um, and basically it does this by um, getting people, you, you know the concept of six degrees of separation? Yes. Where, you know, I might know you, but then I might not know your friend, but, but through you I can know your friend, and then through your friend I can know a hundred other people and so yeah. on. Rippling credit systems work in a similar way. The idea is like I might not, I might know you, but not the, not another person. But through you, um, I can get access to another person, and uh, you can give me a credit line, and they've given you a credit line, and via these, I can actually pay them. Okay. okay. By issuing a promise through you, um, and then you can have systems that basically work on how you route these promises between people. So you can have. Um, algorithm uh, algorithmic systems that design essentially our routing systems for for promises and you can imagine this being a kind of like you know super interesting form of new payment system where because yeah. right now we basically do that through the banking sector we have these big central parties that will um that issue promises but we just use their promises right we don't actually yeah. issue promises ourselves and with the central bank sitting at the center of those systems you know in theory issuing unlimited amounts of credits you know as they keep reminding us yeah, I mean, so so in a modern monetary system, in the, the sort of the, 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 a, a typical monetary system, has got sort of two layers of of issuance. It's got the state, the state issuer, 
Um, and then a second layer of issues, which is the banking sector. So yeah. you've got a dual monetary system, and that's what we refer to as fiat money systems. And um, yeah, and, and, but, but those are credit money systems that are issuing essentially forms of IOUs out and they can be, be moved around. And the entire digital payment system is basically like, how do we move bank IOUs between banks, right? And um, this, these, these sort of alternative systems take the same paradigm of issuing IOUs, but they say individual human beings can do it instead of banks. Right. Right. And note that this is very different to Bitcoin. Bitcoin yeah. is from a completely different theory of money. It believes that money should be a commodity. All right. Yes. So there's no IOU system at all in Bitcoin. In fact, although people, people are building of, IOU systems on top of Bitcoin, but they're not they're not kind of intrinsic to the system itself. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So so and actually this is why Bitcoin in many ways plays into traditional ways of thinking about money. Because yeah. most people in the world, um, if you walk out onto the street, we de facto live in credit money systems. But the psychology of money is very commodity-like because people experience themselves as um, money users. They experience themselves as users of yeah. essentially things issued by some party they don't understand. So actually money seems almost commodity-like to people, even yeah. though it's a credit system. So actually Bitcoin kind of replicates that mentality by having these sort of these object-like tokens that you try to move around, but you don't quite know where they come from or what they are. Yeah. Um, whereas with... Uh, and this is one of the reasons why Bitcoin is, is so inflexible and, and, and so hard to actually make it work. And so volatile. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's basically a kind of sort of a, a kind of like a cyber collectible that sort of just gets priced in US dollars. And that's what it is. Mm -hmm. um, whereas like, albeit done in a very technologically advanced way, you know, it's a, it's a very crude token done very in a very technologically advanced manner. Yeah. Whereas if you want to make the actual monetary system um, sophisticated and more flexible, this, these credit systems are much more interesting because they can start to actually like morph with the underlying, um, they'll be like m much more embedded in people themselves. Yeah. Now, let me ask you um, about the, the role of the big tech firms in, uh, in, in money. You know, we've seen Facebook's attempts to launch a new global medium of exchange, which has been pushed back, but they're still making a big push into payments via WhatsApp and their other messaging systems. You know, Google Pay and Apple Pay are becoming increasingly important. Obviously, in China, you have these payment giants, Alipay and uh, WeChat Pay. You know, can anything stop the the inroads of these big tech firms? Because as soon as these guys, you know, plug together their hundreds of millions or billions of users and start making it easier for them to do things with money, uh, they're surely going to be unstoppable. Well, bear in mind, no no tech firm has yet become a bank. All right, they. What they generally try to do is to push like a membrane over the banking sector or a layer yeah. between you and the banking sector. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, if you look at something like, I don't know, Uber, Uber Cash, in, in the background of that is a bank, all right? And then Uber just sort of brands it on their yeah. app. So basically, they're just steering requests into the banking sector via their systems. All right. And this is what most of the banking and uh, most of the sort of big tech plays in finance are. <clears throat> so they haven't yet actually tried to become banks themselves because that's not right what their business is. Their business is often about, you know, how do you capture user attention through apps? So they're, they're often on sort of this like front side of things. 
Yeah. And they're very good at that. And in some ways, the banking sector might actually be okay with that. They'd be like, okay, well, you just steer all the business to us, basically, yeah. through your systems. But it's more complicated than that because what the sort of the, the dynamics of all this are is like whether the tech firms start to be able to capture all the data and start to undermine the banking sector by sort of being between it and people. And in the case of stuff like Facebook, they, they're trying to create, of course, these, these multi-currency systems, which means they're straddling across nation states. So yeah. if you look at, looked at like Libra, it was basically like Facebook saying, okay, we're going to form this unified interface over all these separate national ecosystems. And we're going to plug into all those national ecosystems in the background, but yeah. you won't see that. And then we'll represent that to you as this new branded unit. Yeah. Okay. In the end, it's still going to be the same national money systems doing all the processing, but with a different branding over the top. And that becomes... Um, well, that becomes potentially problematic, right? Yeah, for sure. National sovereignty and stuff, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's quite it's quite a complex. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the, the simple ways to, to show this is that if, if if you go into your PayPal account, for example, if, if you've got a PayPal account, you'll see it's got different lines for your different currencies. It's like here are your euros, here are your US dollars, and mm. here are your South African rands. It's got these different mm. things, but. Players like Facebook were basically trying to squash those into a single unit, yeah. which of course changes the mentality. Okay, yeah. so and that's what a lot of the sort of regulators and stuff. That's where they run into pushback from the regulators. Yeah, because who knows who's going to benefit from from which, you know, in the background. Then Facebook gets leeway to once it starts representing to you those units in its own in its own unit, it can actually start to do all sorts of stuff in the background that you can't see, right? Yeah. And so this is part of the politics where the nation states say, hey, you know, are you going to be undermining our banking sector and so on, um, transferring the deposits that our people have been giving to some other country and so on. Sure. So. Yeah. Um, as, a, as a final question, um, Brett, what, what's uh, apart from, you know, you're obviously your book is coming out next year and you're busy with that. But any other um, kind of key trends you're looking out uh, for in 2021? I mean, a lot of my work recently has been on protecting the cash system, mm. uh, which is sort of like a historically people like often don't understand that um, why I'm doing that. Uh, but I still think the cash system is like one of the most important parts of the modern monetary system. Yeah. And um, and yeah, it has a lot. It was a very important for many different people. And so a lot of my work has been trying to protect that. In the context of COVID-19, that's been has taken further hit because there's been a bunch of misinformation around um, cash's apparent role in spreading sure. coronavirus. Um, yeah. Right now, I'm in Germany where this fear doesn't exist. <laughs> okay. Yes, German, Germans love their cash. Yeah, and it's actually the German Bundesbank as well. The central bank is also very pro-cash here. And it's one of the few countries in the world where the, the central bank actually takes an active stand in promoting cash. Whereas if you go to the UK, for example, where I think you are right now, the the Bank of England is is too scared to do that because if they upset their banking members like Barclays and HSBC who control the d digital money system. Yes. Um, so they don't. They just let it get like trampled over. Um, and of course, there's a huge number of implications for this uh, around around this. So yeah. a lot of my work has been around the dynamics of the cash system versus the bank, the bank money system. 
Um, and of course, all these different topics I've sort of touched on, they kind of all collide together at some point. You know, so there's central bank digital currencies, one of the new the new topics coming up a lot. And um, so, yeah, I'm kind of... There's a lot going on. Yeah, on my more idealistic side, I'm looking a lot more at these sort of um, new wave rippling credit systems. I mean, that's the, for me, in terms of like actual monetary experimentation, those are the most interesting. But in terms of like much more immediate monetary politics, the cash issue is very important for me. Yeah. Brett, thank you very much. It's been a very interesting chat. Cool. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website.